look like clean up today. No, I, I appreciate that. Me and my cardigan, you know, looking like a full-on grandpa, um, which this thing is incredibly comfortable. If, no, if you guys have not invested in cardigans, I highly, highly recommend um, because they are just incredibly comfortable, and I, I love this thing. I will wear this with anything. Meanwhile, I'm in boyfriend jeans and a cropped hoodie looking like a quirky girl out of a rom-com. It's really bad. I'm sorry. Messy I mean, bun and tea and all. I mean, aren't you a quirky girl out of a rom-com? I mean, isn't that just you? Rude. 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 <laughs> no, I am not. <laughs> I am not Zoe Deschanel. I am Kristen Ritter and Jessica Jones. We've discussed this. Not the manic pixie dream girl, just the manic girl. No. I am the one who has no romance. Like, no, not even that. I'm not the manic pixie dream girl. I'm not the manic girl. I'm the girl on the sidelines or the bartender. I'm the one that looks at the main characters and says, bitches, you need to drink whiskey, not this vodka shit. Like, <laughs> get your shit together, you horrible humans. That is, that is my job. The kind of person who would just be like, you're not ordering a Cosmo in my bar. You either drink whiskey or you get out. That is correct. I have said those words before. <laughs> To be fair, we also didn't have the ingredients for a Cosmo, but I've definitely said those words before. Sidecar too. People kept like coming into the whiskey bar being like, can I get a sidecar? And I'm like, I have none of the ingredients for a sidecar. You can, no, no, you can't. And this is why we're friends. And this is why we're <laughs> friends. I went on a date once and the guy was like, yeah, I wanted, like, I wanted to dress like, I don't know. I think it was something like I wanted to dress like we could like go to a whiskey bar. We could go to a cigar bar. And I was like, that's basically my perpetual state of being is like, I'm down for a drink for a glass of whiskey. And he kind of looked at me and was like, yeah, no, that's just your personality is I am always down for a glass of whiskey. And I was like, I'll take that. Thank you. Thank yeah, you very that, much. That's, that's typically my personality too, except for the fact that I, I got Cokes and my brother because they are doing no alcohol for Advent mm. and they suggested you can join us too. And it, it didn't sound like a suggestion. It sounded more like uh, you're going to join us. Right. And I was like, yeah, I guess I will because my no. liver, because uh, Irish my music plays subtly in the background. <laughs> <laughs> my liver need, my liver needed a break or it was more of just kind of like, Advent used to be a penitential season. So I thought maybe I'll give that a try. It's not going well. It's not going well. I really want to. I really want a beer right now. Even Wait, though it's ten o'clock in the morning. Hang on. I thought Advent was between Christmas and Easter. No, that's just ordinary time. Wait. So what's wait? The Advent and Lent are different. Yeah. So Lent is Lent is the season leading into Easter. Okay. Advent's the season leading into the Christmas season. Okay. Yeah. Like in the really old and school. And they're both like giving up things. Um, Advent used to be, it's not so much anymore, but some people still do it. It's like, kind of like, you know, you know, the preparatory phase. Um, like there was, um, actually a book by Evelyn Waugh. I think it was, it was the Sword of Honor trilogy or something like that, where there's actually a character who gives up alcohol and tobacco every Advent, every Lent. And that's where I kind of got the idea. I did it a couple of years ago and it was fine, but now I'm, now it's 2020. And I'll tell you what, this is the year for wanting a beer <laughs> at 10 o'clock in the morning. You know what I just realized yesterday though? What? This entire decade will be known as the 2020s. That's not a now, good sign, man. You had the aughts, you had the teens, now it's the 20s. We just discussed it's 10 in the morning and we can't have booze. Like, <laughs> how dare you? Damn it, well, Steve. It's, well, it's very mood setting, I think. 
it is very mood setting. I mean, particularly, particularly with what we've got going on today. Um, yes. so sh- shall we get started? Let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Dark Waters, a literary podcast focused on dark fiction and those who love to read and write it. I'm Nate, here as always with... Kirsten, hey. And today we have get, we have Stephen Luber back as a guest editor. He graciously agreed to pull double duty and help edit a story from one of us. And now it's Nate's turn to get tortured. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so after we stopped recording last time, an idea came up in our post-show conversation. And since Nate has already done the questions we traditionally ask our writers slash editors, um, and Steve brought up some old college stories, we thought it'd be a perfect <laughs> chance to embarrass him before reading some of his work. And he's agreed to it. So why not? Agreed is a very generous way of phrasing it. Uh, I got consent, so therefore. Uh, Steve, is there a particular story you'd like to tell or uh, would like Nate to tell? I mean, the one that I think most people will be interested in is a mechanical bull. Okay, so do you want to tell it or should I tell it? Because, I mean, the evening's a little bit foggy both ways. Oh, I'm just like getting comfy in my seat now. Let's <laughs> <laughs> uh, hear your version first. I'll provide color commentary throughout. Okay, so the way this story goes, it was homecoming a few years back. Um, this was, we had just graduated college the year before Steve was still in. And, you know, homecoming in Erie, Pennsylvania, as much as I love Erie, it's a town for drinkers. It's a great town, but it's a town for drinkers. And so we all said, let's go out to all our old college haunts. We'll go out to the Cornerstone. We'll go out to the Plymouth. We'll go out to all these bars that we used to frequent when we were college students and could drink on the cheap. And so we went out. We started, I think I started drinking at noon. Um, we, drank, we drank some really nice Japanese scotch, uh, n- nice Japanese whiskey. It's not scotch, Japanese whiskey. Appreciate a, the correction. Yes, out of a drink, <laughs> out, of a, out of a Viking drinking horn. Um, that I provided. Yes. I just love that mash of cultures. Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was how it started at noon by like, 4 p.m. after we'd lost a football game, like I was knee deep in like a case of yingling or something like that. And then we went out to the bars. And then when the bars came, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. People ordered shots. I had a ton of beer. Next thing I know, we're at a bar called the Bourbon Barrel, which the Bourbon Barrel was a replacement for a really sketchy club called Cell Block. Um, and this was the up class, like this was the upclassing of that space. Like, it was a nice bar, really good wood paneling, bourbon, bu- bourbon bar, which kind of like mid-range bourbon bar, but it had a mechanical bowl. And the minute I walked in, I was just kind of like, I really am kind of curious what it's like to ride one of those things. I've never ridden one of them before. And I'm just sorry. Thing- you, this is your upper class version of this place. And you're <laughs> like, it's like a mid-range bourbon bar. Like it was nice. And it had a mechanical bull and that i just i just need to take a second for you to say that this was the classy version and it had the mechanical bull the last the last bar that was in that space actually it closed after someone got shot okay classing yeah. up of the space i have context now please yes, continue. Exactly. <laughs> it, that place used to have a drink called bong water which i never had but i have heard a lot about and apparently it was a good way to um to get to the chase Let's put it that way, to, to cut to the chase of the evening and just things would start to get foggy, even if you were stone cold sober when you walked in, you had one of those apparently. Um, but 
the minute I walked into this bar, I saw the mechanical bull and I said, I want to ride that thing at some point in the evening. But I didn't ride it until after someone who was out drinking with us. Um, and this is after Steve showed up, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. Someone who was out drinking with us came by because I had noticed on the menu that they had absinthe. So he came by with six glasses of absinthe in his hands. And I was just kind of like, oh, man, you're having a party, aren't you? He's like, one of these is for you. And so, yeah, I chased the little green fairy that night. Um, next thing I know, I'm on the mechanical bowl. I'm just like, I'm giving a test ride, and I'm like falling off because I have no balance whatsoever. I'm about as coordinated as an epileptic orangutan. And, and so I get a test ride. I just fall off. And I'm like, I get back on, and I'm just kind of like, woo, I got this, I got this. And then I just fall flat on my face again. Thank God for the padding. And then after that, I, I get off, I get off the, uh, the space where, we're doing, where the bowl is being done. Next thing I know, there's a line of middle-aged women that have just, like, gone around the pen where the bowl was. And I'm just sitting there sipping absinthe with one of our buddies. You had more absinthe after that? I didn't, oh, did the, I didn't finish the, the initial glass that someone had given me. So I'm just like, I'm just, you know, sitting there watching the women on the bowl, you know, just sipping absinthe. And one of my buddies, we're sitting next to each other. I'm just kind of like, I feel like a Victorian author. I feel like I'm Oscar Wilde or something like that. And it's like, but I am not writing anything, anything worthwhile after this. <laughs> Why a Victorian author? Well, Oscar Wilde was inspired to write the picture of Dorian Gray after an absinthe binge. Okay. Sure. That's why, <laughs> that's why I felt that way. I don't know. I just, I hadn't had absinthe before, and that's the last time I've ever actually had it, because the next morning I was... Oh, no, it. it's terrible. Well, also because in the U.S. they color it green. It's not traditionally green. If you get it in Prague, it's usually orange. But because of the connotations of the green fairy, there's... Mm-hmm like a lot of sugar in it now or like not like a lot but there's like colorants and there's additives and there's things I mean, to make it green that I mean, yeah i mean also it tastes like licorice and i hate like i hate licorice yeah so i that was i don't know who this friend of yours was but they they did not act like a friend that night <laughs> he's, he's, shot he's, yeah i mean he and i were not on the best of terms we'd worked together previously but we knew each other and so but in Erie, typically when you know somebody and you go out drinking with them, you're kind of stuck with them for the rest of the day. Yeah, um, that's we, fair. I went on a bar crawl a few months back before, you know, the ordeals began, you know, the pandemic started. The ordeals. And- <laughs> <laughs> 2020 is the ordeals. It's like the troubles in Ireland. Like, <laughs> it's the American ordeals. <laughs> the crisis of the 21st century. <laughs> but, um... But we were we were on a bar crawl, and my friends and I we were it was one of those bar crawls where everyone gets dressed up in costume, and we were the Monster Mash. We were Dracula, Frankenstein, Love uh, it. the Wolfman, and the Mummy. We ran into the the mystery like miss like what is it? It's it's the name of the Scooby Doo Gang. Mystery we Machine. Ran, yeah, we ran to the Mystery Machine and the the Scooby Doo Gang. We wanted to stay with them for the entire day. We had like eight more hours of drinking. We were just like, we got to find these people. We need to find them again. I, I just wish that you had a video of you guys like in the bar, but like the monsters and the Scooby-Doo gang being like, 
<laughs> there is a photo somewhere. There's a lot of photos. I think, I think Shep has that one, if memory serves. No, Wait. Shep Shep doesn't have Shep doesn't have that one. Shep wasn't on it. Um Will okay. would have it. Um Will Steve, and Dylan. Very important question because I'm sure Nathan would deny it. Is there video of the mechanical bull incident? I don't have it. I think that's one Shep has, if I'm not mistaken. Shep does not um, have it. Jake has it. Mm-hmm. So I must my become room- friends with Jake. My my roommate this has can, it. This can be arranged. <laughs> My roommate has it. He did post it on Facebook, and he did ask me. I did ask him to take it down, so he was kind of to do that. But he does have it. Um, there is proof of this. Um, what makes it worse is that I went when we were back on the bar crawl in 2020. Um, I rode the bull again, and did even worse. How do you do even worse than when you were on absinthe? Because I'd been drinking since 10 a.m. Versus drinking from noon. This is why my liver needs a rest. Proud of you. <laughs> you can interpret that pride to be directed at any of the aforementioned things. I'm just encompassing proud of you. <laughs> is there anything you wanted to add, Steve? No, I think that about nailed it. Um, except for the fact that like the first time he got on there and he fell off, like there was like no change in facial expression whatsoever. Like it was just like a completely waxed mask because he like slid off ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes yes i in those days i was a different man in those days like a literal melt off the side <laughs> basically that's what it looked like from the video from when i saw it gorgeous but yeah no it's um it's i was a different man back in those <laughs> days much different man back in those days when I was when young and stupid. We're all still young and stupid. Well, I don't know about young. I guess physically young, mentally not um, at all. Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 approaching my 30s. So, I got to <laughs> You're not. I am. I I am like I birthday than... in less than a month. It's very sad. <laughs> <laughs> not my 30th birthday, but like I'm upper 20s and it sucks ah <laughs> uh, yes yes oh those those great days oh, so it's fine okay from one story have, to another yes i feel like i i have received all the information i could desire out of that story <laughs> that's glorious um so nathan we're looking at your story today uh why don't you tell us about it like kind of what the origin was like how the idea came about so the story is called come away to the water. Um, and it's a mix of kind of what Steve was talking about last time where he was talking about myths and mythology and how that kind of influences his work. This is a similar thing where when I was a kid, I remember reading from this old book of Quebecois, um, folk tales and myths. Um, as a child does. Yes. Yes, exactly. It was just one of those books that was just lying around in my house. Um, and one of the stories was actually about basically a guy who had to carry a witch across a river because she couldn't go herself. And she was trying to get to an island where there was a witch's gathering going on. The devil himself was like, like when, we, when I say witch, I do not mean the, the modern day interpretation of it where it can be kind of construed with spiritualism almost. This is like actual like devil worshiping witch. Um, and she basically contracts him to carry her across the river to this massive bonfire this massive gathering and for some reason that image always stuck with me 
Um, and then this is also like a mix of Glenn Hansard, uh, who's a folk artist. He sang this song called Come Away to the Water, which is where the title comes from, obviously. But it includes lines like, um, come away, little lamb, come away to the slaughter. Give yourself that we might live anew. Um, and like those lines just kind of stuck with me. And I was just kind of like, this is kind of what came of it. Um, this weird little hodgepodge. So yeah, that's kind of it. When did you first write this? Because it's been a while since I've seen it. Um, I think I first wrote this in 20, maybe 2016. I think it was the first year I came to DC. Mm. Um, and yeah, I was writing a lot of short stories in those days. Um, that was when I was just kind of getting started and I was still kind of on the like the, I want to imitate Flannery O'Connor kick, but with a lot more darkness. Um, a lot more. Yes, very much so. <laughs> but yeah, that, so this is a little bit older, but it's kind of sat on the shelf for a bit because I've tried to, I've tried to send it to a couple of venues um, and I've tried to have it get edited up. But for some reason, I just kind of like pushed it off to the side and worked on other stuff, which is a bad habit, but it's, it is what it is. Happens. Um, Steve, any questions before we start or should we jump into the reading? No, I think we're good to go. Cool. All right. Emmett was watching his daughter on the playground when the man crept beside him. He watched as she swooped down and up on the swings, finally going after five push starts from Emmett. He kept thinking, why doesn't she understand how to do this? It's not hard. She's six, damn it. The man spoke in a soft voice, mumbling through his cigarette. Do you like that little girl? He said. What? Emmett asked. What are you talking about? Why are you wearing that thick coat? I'm cold, he said. Bad circulation. It's 90 degrees out. How bad's your circulation? Answer my question. She's my daughter. That's not an answer. The wide-brimmed hat shaded the man's eyes. They still seemed to glint like dark jewels. I can get rid of her if you want. Why would I want that? Emmett heard his daughter call for help. Daddy, I need another push, he thought. How does she keep stopping? I can read your face, your heart, the man said. It's written on them both. Emmett stood up and went to help his daughter. He pushed her again and tried to show her yet again how to swing her legs back and forth as she swooped through the air. The man's proposal echoed in his ears. I can get rid of her. The man was still on the bench when Emmett sat back down. The cigarette either hadn't burned much or he replaced it with another. The dark hat and trench coat were almost comical in the heat. You want to get rid of her, the man said. I know you do. You've wanted to get rid of her since her mother told she was pregnant. You don't know anything, Emmett said. He leaned forward, trying to put distance between the man's voice and his ear. His mind told him that hearing such things could only lead to trouble, but his heart tried to pull him closer. Waves of emotions, regrets, yearnings for freedom pulled Emmett towards the mysterious man and the voice that promised the fulfillment of dreams he tried so long to keep buried. The man spoke a little louder, making the distance irrelevant. If his target wouldn't come closer, he'd draw him in. I know more than you think. Let me guess. Condom broke. You weren't planning on fatherhood, but when she told you that she wanted to keep the child, you couldn't cut and run. You were raised with some concept of honor. Of responsibility. If nothing else, you couldn't stomach the thought of being seen as a coward. Am I hitting the mark? No, Emmett said, but the man was dead on. The announcement from Val, the girl's mother, was a shock. 
She wouldn't have any talk of not keeping the child. It was the shame of being seen as too weak for a fatherhood that compelled him to stay. Every night he sweated in bed, dreaming of running, of leaving, of being a free man once again. Every time Val would ask why he shook and shivered in, at night in, in the bed, he'd lie and say he was having nightmares. We can resolve your little difficulty easily. Lucy, her name is? Just come to the river. Emmett's brain forced his legs to move, driving him away when his heart wanted to lean in closer. What little honor was left in him didn't even want to think of shirking his responsibility. He shot from the bench and went to collect his daughter. We need to go home, he said. Come on down, sweetheart. But I just started swinging, Daddy. Her voice lilted up and down with each word. Every time she spoke was a song of her own creation. Get off the swing! He grabbed the chains of the swing and pulled it to a stop. The girl sulked, barely pushing herself to the ground. Emmett grabbed her hand and started pulling her with him. Her feckless attempts to resist only scuffed her shoes. Emmett glanced back to the bench to see the man still there. The cigarette between his teeth glowed red under the shadow of the hat. The sun beat down from the clear sky, but just seeing the man, his lips spread in a sickly and malicious smile, filled Emmett with the chill of winter. He turned away, but he still felt his eyes glaring at him. The soft, whispering voice stayed in his ear. Come to the river. Come. At dinner with Val and Lucy that evening, Emmett tried to act as though nothing was wrong. He asked about Val's day at work. He smiled and joked when Lucy complained about having to leave the park early. He helped clear the dishes and offered Lucy a scoop of ice cream before she brushed her teeth and went to bed. The whole time, the man's voice beckoned him to the river. The voice seemed to be the manifestation of his personal wish, the things he told himself at night, or any other time he was alone, frustrated, or drunk, had all come into being. The words had become flesh and come to tempt him. After Lucy was in bed and he'd drunk his second glass of bourbon, Val sat down beside him on the couch. Are you okay? She said. You seem sad. No, I'm fine. Val crept beside him, weaseling her way under his arm. Her lips curved in an attempt at an alluring smile. Her lashes fluttered as she laid her head on his chest. All the time she did this, Emma took it as the precursor to sex. She would slide her under his arm and place her head on his chest. He leaned in for the kiss that would signal the start of the ritual. This time, he didn't respond to her. There was no kiss, no soft and surely placed hands, no winking response to her smile. There was only the meager response of, not tonight, Val, please. She pulled away from his chest and glanced over her shoulder. Now I know something is wrong. I'm fine, Emmett said. Really? Her eyes stayed on his face as she turned towards him on the couch. His hand tensed on the empty glass. The voice of the man in the park was still echoing in his skull. He hoped Val didn't know what he was thinking. Is it Lucy? She said. Lie, Emmett. Just lie, he thought. Yes, he said, if I'm being honest. I may be many things, but I don't want to be a liar, he thought. Did you want to be a father? He could see the beginning of tears in her eyes as he looked at her. He got up to pour himself another two fingers of bourbon, but Val pushed him into the couch. Don't get drunk, she said. Just tell me, please. He let go of the glass and grabbed hold of her hand. No, I didn't. She rested her head back down on his chest, but didn't look up at him. Her eyes stared ahead at the photo hanging on stark taupe walls of the apartment. Six years together, coming up from high school. 
and all they had was a third-floor dump with a window that leaked under the rain, a sad substitute for what they'd wanted. Did you want to be a mother, he said. Please say no, he thought. She stood up and wiped her eyes. Yeah, I did, she said. Maybe just became one a bit earlier than I planned. God sends you blessings at unexpected times. Her remaining piety twanged inside her, a sour note telling her she was wrong. To see the product of sin as a blessing requires certain things of the sinner, required a disposition that neither possessed. She tried to thank God for her daughter, but it was hard at times. Difficult, she always said, but worth trying. Emmett said, if I told you we could fix this, what would you say? What do you mean by fix? If I could get rid of her, scot-free. Val saw an anxious glint in his eye. He was willing to make a proposition and waited only for her approval. I'd say no, and I'd say that I should smack you for thinking it. You talk like you didn't want her in the first place, but I want her now. Bullshit. You think I'm lying, Emmett? I hear you talk in your sleep. You talk about life without her. He stood up, towering over her. He stepped forward. She backed up against the wall. You call her the little bitch. You're lying, she said, trying to skirt to the side and get clear of the wall. He moved like how he would circle other kids on the asphalt in high school. He'd show his bulk and corner them. It was a show to scare the kid into backing down. She once thought it was because he didn't like throwing punches. She was wrong. He just liked making people feel small. He slammed his hand against the wall, using a stiff arm to trap her. I'm not lying. It's written on your face. You don't want her either. I do. She ducked under his arm, and he grabbed her shoulders. He leaned forward, gripping her shoulders tight. Val could smell the bourbon on his breath. I think I found a way out of this for us. We don't have to live like this anymore. She forced his hands from her shoulders. Can we not talk about this when she's on the next room, Emmett? Tomorrow, maybe, after she leaves for school? He backed away and put his hands in his pockets. As he dropped onto the arm of the couch, he gazed at the floor. A cockroach crawled under the sink in the kitchen. Sure, we'll talk tomorrow, he said. You going to bed? Yes, but I'd like to sleep alone tonight. Take the couch. Why? Because I don't feel safe with you, Val thought. Because I'd like to have a bit of space, she said. Or you're just scared of me, Emmett thought. Either way works. Fine, good night. He watched her slide behind the bedroom door, and she watched him. He smiled at how powerful her fear made him feel. He hadn't felt that way in a while. Behind it, he felt her suspicion and knew that something between them would soon come to an end. He thought of that Elvis song. We can't go on together with suspicious minds. His father had played it again and again on the record player before he had left Emmett and his mother. He had let the fear, the insecurity take hold, and he had become convinced that his wife was about to leave him. Emmett's father left before he could be left, and in the end broke the heart of a woman who had sincerely loved him and had always been faithful. The song kept playing in Emmett's mind, and he knew that the time had come. Once fear and suspicion creep in, the end is in sight. Once he was assured Val was sleeping, he crept from the couch to Lucy's bedroom. She lay on the bed, spread out like a starfish. She'd always slept like that, and once he'd found it somewhat endearing. Val used to comment that she was trying to reach out and touch everything, trying to grab everything and give it a taste, a touch, a kiss. She dreams big, she'd say, though he couldn't remember when she said it last. Lucy, he said, 
Lucy. She quietly stirred, drawing in her arms and legs, falling to her side. Lucy. Be quiet. Be gentle in the thought. The thought didn't seem his. It was something else's. He heard the voice of the man in the coat and his hat and hat in his head. Be gentle. Be quiet. Don't wake Val. Come to the river. Lucy opened her eyes and said, Daddy, what is it? We're going to take a little trip down to the river. Where's Mom? She's still sleeping. It's just you and me. We're making up for the short time at the playground. Really? She pushed herself up on her elbows, teeth shining in the soft light. Get your shoes on, okay? I'll even carry you a ways. Piggyback? Piggyback. Emmett smiled, but he felt it a sneer. It's all part of the act. Just look happy. Draw her in. Make her trust you. Okay. The hesitation in her voice struck him like a hammer. The mix of frustration and confusion and regret choked him for a moment, sticking in his throat like a jagged bone. Come on, damn it, just believe me. But why didn't she already trust me? Don't fathers just have trust from the start? Shouldn't they? Do you not want to, Lucy? We don't have to. Lucy shook her head. Let's go. She came to her knees and then hopped on his back. She was heavy to him, heavier than she should have been or had ever been before. She wrapped her arms around his neck, as she had done so many other times before, and it felt like a noose slinking his way around his throat. Her skin was like thick, coarse rope, rubbing and grating against his windpipe. The river wasn't far, less than a mile through the woods on the other side of the park, where they had been earlier that day. Fifteen minutes of trudging over the snapping branches, tripping over the stray logs, and stumbling through the darkness brought them to the first gleam of a fire burning on the water's edge. The man in the coat turned to see them, and Emma could see his eyes still glinting in the darkness. The firelight danced in them, drawing him closer like a moth. His hat was off, showing a head of silvery hair. Lucy's noose-like arms tightened around his neck. Out of the corner of his eye, he could see her shaking his, her head. Don't go near him, Daddy. Emmett, good to see you, the man said. And you brought Lucy. The man crooked his finger and Emmett walked closer. Lucy's arms tried to pull on his neck. She tried to pull him back, away from the fire, but he was too strong for her, and her small arms had no effect on him. The fire grew hotter on her face as her father drew closer. He didn't feel anything and saw almost nothing but the eyes of the man in the coat. Within arm's reach of the fire, Lucy was pulled from Emmett's neck and thrown to the ground. The woman in black, who had hidden in the shadows of the fire, held Lucy down. Arms spread to the side and her feet tight together. One of them, a witch with a crooked and warty nose, visible from within the hood over her head, pulled a knife from her gaping tunic sleeves. The fire danced over the flat of the blade, but not the edge. It was too sharp. Lucy screamed, but the sound didn't travel much further than the hand covering her mouth. Emmett turned to see his daughter, eyes wide with fear, struggling against her captors. He saw the knife and swung his fist at the man in the coat. The man caught it and smiled at Emmett. You told me you'd just get rid of her, Emmett screamed, but you didn't say anything about killing her. The man threw his own fist into Emmett's nose, breaking, him and th breaking it and throwing him down towards the ground. There must be blood, the man said. Did you really think this would go down any other way? The man took a step towards Emmett. Who was, only no, who was only now realizing how small he was compared to the man in the coat. 
Emmett started to back away, sliding his backside against the leaves and the dirt, almost crab-walking away, but one of the women stopped him. The man's eyes glinted and burned in the firelight. There must be blood, Emmett. The woman behind Emmett flashed the knife in front of his face. Is she going to cut me? What is happening? What the hell is happening? The knife turned around and the woman offered him the hilt. You cut her, she said. A voice like rats scratching at the door. No, Emmett yelled to her. He turned to the man towering over him. No, I won't. You will. The man shoved his foot into Emmett's chest and put him flat on his back. The boot pressed slowly on his chest, crushing his sternum. You brought her to us for our purposes, and you will do what we tell you. You want to get rid of her? Man up and do it yourself. Take some responsibility for your thoughts. You want to deny what you tell yourself in the night? What you dream about? Emmett pushed the boot from his chest and scrambled to his feet. The man was still so much bigger in the dark than he'd ever seemed in the light. Emmett turned to see that his daughter had stopped fighting. She was crying through the mouth on her hand, unable to fight, unable to protect herself. She was helpless, at her father's mercy. You've wanted her gone for ages, the man said. Emmett turned back to the man. He turned his back on his daughter. It's festered inside you since she was born. All those things we wanted to do, he thought. All those things I wanted to do. She was the reason for it. I wanted so much for Val, for myself, if it hadn't been for her. Will Val know? If she does, will she do anything? Either way, I'm free of Lucy. That little crying, whining chain on my ankle. The man took the knife from the woman and offered it to Emmett. Be a man, he whispered. Take some responsibility. Do something about what you want. Emmett took hold of the hilt and turned to Lucy, who looked to him like a gently wriggling worm in the dark. He flipped the blade around. The touch of steel against his forearm sent a chill through his skin. The women holding down Lucy started humming rhythmically, and others behind Emmett started stomping their feet. Lucy started fighting again, wriggling and kicking, trying to break free. The undulating tone sent Emmett's heart racing. Every thought of hatred he ever had towards Lucy sped through his mind. The little bitch. The chain. The worm. The fucking leech. The one who stole my dreams from me. It's your fault! He plunged the knife deep into her chest. The thoughts stopped. The blood ran thick from Lucy's heart, spurting over the hilt and covering Emmett's hand. He let go of the hilt and stood up again, mesmerized by the firelight dancing across his blood-covered palm. He felt relieved and released. His muscles slackened. His shoulders straightened out like a weight had been taken from them, and wings had given him lift. The noose was gone from around his neck. The once harsh, undulating tones and savage stomping made his blood pump faster. One of the women took the knife from the child's heart and placed it in the hand of the man in the coat. Well done, the man said, his diamond eyes burning at Emmett. His smiling teeth seemed jagged and twisted. Emmett had never seen them before now. The women who had held Lucy down now lifted her up. They carried her to the water and placed her in the current leaving her to flow down towards the cities in the distance. Emmett followed them and stood in the current, watching his daughter drift away. Good riddance, he said to Lucy's dead body. The white dot grew smaller and smaller as she drifted from the firelight. 
a starlight in the black roiling of a river wide like the sky. The man in the coat waited behind Emmett, the knife flashing in the firelight. Are you proud of yourself, Emmett? Yeah, I was a man. I took charge. I'm free now. Free? The knife was warm with Lucy's blood, but the steel beneath was cold against Emmett's throat. What a joke. The cut was fast and deep. The blood ran down Emmett's chest and stained his shirt. The blade thrust into the side of his neck, piercing his carotid and ensuring his death. Emmett tried to reach up and stop the man from pulling the blade, trying to keep the wound intact. He wanted to live. He was free now. He had a life to live. He needed to survive this. The man pulled the blade and whispered in Emmett's ear, Freedom's just an illusion. He kicked Emmett into the current to float like his daughter, a dark star to, bar to follow the bright one. In the morning, someone would find them and make up some story. A father and daughter attacked, the father dying while trying to protect her. It would be an absolute lie, told because the truth was too strange, too dark, too terrifying to consider. Only the mother would know the truth. The father was too selfish to be a man and chose to kill that which could have sanctified him. The man dropped the knife into the water and walked back on shore. He replaced his hat and told the women to keep the fire ready. There will be another one soon, he said, walking off into the woods, off to meet the next father, mother, man, woman, child, to meet the next person who wanted freedom and would be willing to die to get it. And end scene. So, like yeah. clapping, like clapping. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's that's very old, but I know that you guys have some comments about it, and I'm really eager to hear them. I have so many. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> that's, that's that's what I was expecting. Are for the course. I okay for anyone listening to this. I have read this story before. And I thought I made comments and my comments disappeared. So like at 2 a.m. yesterday, I like put them all back. So if you're just now looking at this file, Nathan and Steve, and just saw like an explosion, that was <laughs> me at 2 a.m. So, uh, right. So I think we kind of listed the main points of contention. But Steve, I want to hear your thoughts first because I've read this story before. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely like a lot of the building blocks here for it. Um, I like the general idea, the themes. Um, I can definitely see how like the aforementioned Quebecois stories definitely, you know, played into it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, overall, I liked it a lot. Just had a few like suggestions over the course of the text if we want to get into them that I think all would um, be developed a little bit more poorly. Yeah. Same. I really like the concept of this story. I think there's just some issues with execution and kind of themes that you touch on and ideas that you touch on that I don't necessarily think are explained the way that you want them to be explained. So yeah. I think that we can go through it. Um, so I think our first point was this, like the first interaction. I think we both had an issue with this first interaction. Do you want to go first? Sure. I mean, I guess like just putting myself in his shoes, like if I was pushing my daughter on a swing and a creepy man in a trench coat approached me and asked me if I liked a little girl, um, my reaction would have been something other than, what? What are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I noticed that as soon as you guys pointed out, I was like, that is a very odd reaction for, for someone to have. But I, I guess at the time that like, initially I just didn't think of it. But Yeah, I think for me, I was like, okay, 
I think you need like either a more warm up, like he notices the guy in the park and he's like, why is this dude wearing a coat? And then like the dude happens to sit down. He's like, so that girl. And he's like, oh, you're kind of creepy. I'm going to go push my daughter on the swings. And then the guy's still there. And he's like, you don't like her, do you? And then that makes it a better like, no, no, she's my daughter. And he's like, no, you, you don't like her. I feel like there's a way to warm that up mm-hmm. in a way that would make more sense because he hates her. But if you just like, again, if you, there's a dude just like, so that little girl, you're going to be like, bitch, go like, no. <laughs> yeah. It was more like to catch a predator rather than like supernatural, like the way I was first reading it. Um, uh, and you yeah. could, you could, it could actually develop it a little bit more like that way. Um, like sort of like lead the reader to think it's going to be like more like that kind of thing. And then segue supernatural. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Like if you wanted to play it that like he thinks he might want to sell her instead of kill her or get rid of her. In that, that kind of way that works yeah actually because then that because then that also brings up the later thing of you know i i didn't think you were going to kill her i thought you were just mm-hmm. gonna get i thought you were just, you said just you said you were gonna you just said you were gonna get rid of her you didn't say you were gonna kill her so that that actually does work like having that kind of don't know which way it's gonna go so but i think it also is like the implication of how much does he hate this girl that because I think when I first read it, I was expecting it to be like, oh, we can get rid of her and then like kind of do like a timeline switch almost. So like, that's what I was expecting so that everyone kind of forgets that she exists because there's got to, the way that it's written now, and I like it, the way that it's written now, there's got to be something going on in his mind of like, how am I going to explain to like my in-laws, to like my friends, to her teachers that she's just suddenly gone? Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, that's... That's a valid point. I've never. So there has to be something in his brain of that. Yeah. No, I see. I see where you're going. Uh, I also like. So I think I said, don't make him mumble in the beginning. The man in the coat, unless like that's the unless you're like going through like the warm up thing. However, you want to deal with that. I think that we need to know something about his voice, Mm -hmm. and like, is it creepy? Is it that kind of like? Uh-huh. like to catch a predator thing or is it more of like a I will steal your daughter's soul like, <laughs> I'm not explaining this well I clearly no, need no, no, more no. caffeine I'm, but like no, I'm, I'm, I mean? I'm, I'm getting it yeah it needs it needs to have like some sort of a descriptor as opposed to just he's just talking through a cigarette yeah um, which yeah. talking through a cigarette makes it sound like you know there's two dudes just chilling in a bar somewhere as opposed to this guy approached him on a on a playground asking about his daughter which uh, could have been a valid starting point if he's like at a bar getting drunk and like the guy sees a picture of his daughter like that's another a different way you could have started the story but like mm-hmm. since it is at the park um i also on the same like a kind of just building off the same thing when he says answer my question so he's like why are you wearing that thick coat? I'm cold. It's 90 degrees out. How bad your circulation? And the guy's like, answer my question is if he has any like to stand on in this conversation, that's completely bonkers. Yeah. Why is Emmett answering the question? Like, why is he engaging with this dude at all? Like, why does he feel like he should answer this dude's question? Cause a, it's weird. B it's presumptuous. And like, is it that he sees his eyes and he's like immediately drawn in or like, he feels like the man's not going to judge him or is it, maybe it's like a warm-up thing but there's got to be a reason that emmett's like you just asked me if i actually give a shit about my daughter and i'm gonna give you a valid answer like that you know yeah yeah no i i see where i think the initial 
think the initial draw of this was that he actually was like kind of drawn in by, by the guy. Like he had actually like, like it was in the initial draft of this. And I think on your first round of comments, uh, that's what caused me to kind of take it out. And I didn't put something in its place was that like the guy's eyes like glint. Like mm-hmm. there's actually like something about this guy's eyes that are incredibly alluring and like they draw you in. Um, I think yeah, you that mentioned was, that later on. Yeah, exactly. And I think I need to give a little bit more lead into that um, and show that a little bit more. But it's also just kind of that, do you, maybe I'm the only one that has this, but there are moments where like someone's saying exactly what you think and you just, you, you respond just naturally um, where I think that's what, that was the initial intent of just kind of like this guy actually like sees this guy actually sees what I'm thinking. And so, you know, I might as well, I might as well respond to it, but I see your point. Um, No, I think both of those are very valid. And I kind of, and I kind of got the, like, this dude is reading my mind, like what the fuck kind of vibe that was going off of it. But I I just think it needs to be a little bit more clear. mm -hmm. Otherwise it's just like a, Hey, creepzoid. Of course I'm going (laughs) to tell you all about my life. That's fine. Um, yeah, I think this entire beginning, cause like, I like the ending, I like how it builds, but I feel like the beginning just needs to be fleshed out a little bit more. Um, another point I had was about, uh, so when he says we can resolve your little difficulty easily, Lucy, her name is just come to the river and then it's Emmett's brain force his legs to move. I think he, I think you need a second for him to kind of think about that. And that can kind of play into the idea we were saying before of like, what does it mean to get rid of her and like him having that moment? But just like before he's like running away, just having a second for like, what did this dude just say to me? What did this dude just like offer me? And then being like, no, we're going home, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, Steve, you had a point about uh, every time she spoke. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a comment somewhere in there about something that, that like, every time she spoke, it was, like, a, like a masterpiece of her own creation. Yeah, it was, and I thought, every, every time she spoke, it was a song of her own creation. Okay, yeah, and I just thought it would be, like, if you want to, like, really highlight, like, his own sort of, like, internal battle with, like, this desire versus what would it objectively be a better thing, you could rewrite it to be, like, every time she spoke, it was, like, a song of his own creation, just to, like, really underscore, like, that... You know, I didn't really want to have you, but I am your father. I had you have this responsibility here, you know, responsibility that I don't want, but I think it would help, like, I guess, like, build the tension more mm-hmm. over time, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Just a little thing. It's not necessarily, like, you know, a big deal or anything like that. No, but I, I like that. And I think it, I think it goes to, like, some of the things that I was trying to do. It's, like, the, the, the theme of tension comes up. Actually, like, building in that very natural kind of tension between what he wants and what he thinks he should be doing. It's, it's not a matter of like right and wrong. It's a matter of like what he wants and what he, what he thinks he should be doing at this point. And so that's kind of something that needs to be built a little bit more. And I think that adds to it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it kind of underscores that she clearly cares about her dad. She, Mm -hmm. whether or not she understands how much he hates her they clearly have some sort of father-daughter relationship that he is willing to take her to the park and push her on the swings and, like, give her ice cream after dinner. Like, they clearly have some sort of bond. So anything to kind of exaggerate that, like, yes, she's a parasite, and yes, he hates her, but it's also something he created, and he does love her in some weird way. Otherwise, he wouldn't hesitate to kill her. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I think think it also, like, 
it, it underscores a little bit like the horror of what he's actually doing. Like even, even if it is the dichotomy of like, I'm willing to sell her or I'm willing to kill her. Like if there's actually a relationship there where she trusts him implicitly, that goes a little bit more to, to just like how horrific this actually is. Exactly. Especially because later on, you can and like I feel like you could change that bit at the end where he's like, shouldn't she trust me? Shouldn't she already trust me? Like if she just does implicitly trust him, and then that's like a guilt within him that she just is willing to go with him because she thinks he's like she would never think that he could hurt her. Like he's her dad, you know. Uh, I think our next like section was about the Val conversation. Uh, Steve, did you want to start? Yeah, I mean, just from like my point point of view, and again, it was my first time reading it. Um, it seemed like she like got to the heart of the matter like really quickly. Like they, you know, they put their daughter to bed. They're sitting on the couch, and like she immediately goes for the "Did you want to be a father?" question. And I think that was like, I mean, again, it was kind of parallel to what happened with the creepy man in the park earlier. You know, he like, he gets like right to what's on his mind immediately. But um, I thought for like, if you wanted to make it a little bit more realistic, maybe have some sort of dialogue or banter. Uh, leading up to that um but no absolutely i had the same point i think the whole when she first asked is it lucy i feel like you can kind of build that in another direction especially because if val's gotta know he didn't want to be a dad like she she because if she's talking in her sleep and he knows she doesn't want to be a mom there's no way she doesn't know he didn't want to be a dad um unless she's really delusional and that doesn't seem like the character he wrote so if she kind of pokes at it in other ways of like, did someone hurt her in the park? Did someone say something? Are you stressed about money? Like what? Please don't let this be the thing that we've been avoiding for six years. Like, and then you have to get into that conversation because like, that's the buildup to it. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think, da, 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 da. yeah. And then my other point with this was you switch points of views in this part of the story and i don't think val is flash is fleshed out enough or like present enough Emmett is the the care the main character of the story you're the one like he's the internal dialogue we're hearing he's the person who's like driving the story so to have these weird shifts to val's points of view when she doesn't really appear again i i personally didn't like it and it really drew me out of Emmett's side of the story nice. but yeah i think i think initially what i was going for there was it was just trying to like it was trying to flush her out a little bit more, but I think you bring up a valid point of she only shows up once and she's only there for like, she's kind of like a ghost in the rest of the story where she's like a little bit kind of hovering in the back at the end. Um, but I see your point. So I'll- Yeah, I'll and I like, I like the idea of her being a ghost because it's like the life that he could have had with her is brought up a couple of times. But then even at the end, he's like, well, even if she doesn't like me, at least I'm free. Like at that point, it's just- everything's become so tainted by the fact that they had a kid too soon. Yeah, no, I got you. Or even that they had a kid at all. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, and that kind of goes into the, you would, so like when he brings it up, like she's like, yeah, I wanted to be a mom and like the piety thing and you can bring that up in a different way. But then he just suddenly goes with like, you call her a little bitch in your sleep. It feels like it comes a little bit out of nowhere too. Like if he felt if he knew she felt like this, why haven't they talked about this? Like, or, so I would say like either have that be a moment of you're being a hypocrite by like calling me a bad father or like by 
saying that I shouldn't do this, that, the other, when like you feel this way or it needs to be something that's like a constant known unknown. Does that, I'm not, is that, am I explaining that okay? Um, I'm getting, I'm kind of getting like the main point of it. What do you mean by a known unknown? Like it's known, like they both know that the other doesn't want the kid, but they've never explicitly stated it. Right. So it's like, I know you feel that way. Even, like, you've never had, but like, you've never said it. So you have plausible deniability, but yeah. I know you feel this way. Yeah, no, I, 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 see what, I see what you're getting at. It's like, like he's heard her talk in her sleep and she's heard him talk in his um, or something like that. Or he's like. Or just the fact that he drinks all the time and he's clearly unhappy. Yeah, I, that's another way of putting it. Yeah. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean you're unhappy. No, 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 no. <laughs> sorry. That was not the implication I was going for. Sorry. No, 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 no. No, I, I, I see where you were going. It was more of just that, like, he goes through the motions, but it's not that he's actually, like, putting his heart and soul into it. Like, he's not, like, he's not the dad that goes to the PTA. He's the dad that avoids the PTA at all costs just because of the fact that he's like, I don't need to be part of this child's education, like, at all. Yeah. Like, like, I'll do the cursory amount to, like, have a relationship with this creature, but I'm still going to think of it in my head as a creature and as an it, not a... Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's the point. Yeah. I think my next thing was, so hearing you do the reading, I didn't, like, really think about it until you were reading through it, but that whole paragraph about suspicious minds, I don't think you need that. I, okay. I, do, I don't think it adds much to the story. I think we get a little bit of Emmett's backstory, but... He's not, like, upset about having a kid because of Val. It's, I think it goes with, like, the whole, like, the ghost of the story of what could have been. But I think that brings it into, like, it brings up this idea of their relationship having something to do with him killing the daughter in a way that's not fully realized and not fully relevant. I don't know if, no, Steve, if you sense. felt that way. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, you know, he doesn't really have any problem with Val. It's, you know the circumstances of how things worked out it was you know they both had like this image in their head of like what their life was going to be and when it didn't quite turn out that way you know there, there's both some like resentment for both of them as a result of that but it doesn't seem like there's like a direct conflict between the two of them except when it comes to this particular issue yeah and i think if you get that lead-in that we're talking about um into this fight and then if it's more of that knowledge of this is the fight we knew was coming. This is the fight we knew was coming. And then it just ends with he knew something between them would soon come to an end. I feel like that's a better way to just end it. And it's like the, we know this is over or we know that something is broken because we finally stated what we think. Yeah. No, I see it. Let's see what was the next. Okay. So when we get into the murder always a great lead into anything yeah you know um i think we both had a moment of or maybe this was just me uh the internal debate of yeah okay so steve you had this comment too i'm glad we were on the same page for like most of this um <laughs> it was the internal struggle leading into the actual murder and we've kind of talked about like the trust issues and like the kind of guilt there and like they do have a relationship but also it's a creature so the building of the internal struggle of what he's feeling and maybe that can be the shock of this it, like more of the shock of this isn't what I thought it's still dark and horrible and what I thought was dark and horrible but it's not quite like I feel like there's more internal struggle you can have before he kills her 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Did you have anything to add to that? No, that's basically like my thought too. Like it seemed like it, it kind of got to the murdering pretty quickly. I mean, he, he has like that initial moment of surprise, like, oh, this is not what I thought I was signing up for. But it seems like he was willing to actually, you know, thrust the knife quicker than I was expecting anyway. So like the actual like internal debate needs to go on a little bit longer or at least like have like the more or have the shock of what's actually going down be more apparent. I think that one, mm-hmm. I okay. think it's the shock value of like, oh, I'm actually doing this mm-hmm. more. So, I think more so than should I do this? Should I not? It's like, a oh, I'm actually going to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that gets into, that gets into also kind of the, the discussion of what the guy in the coat says it's like take responsibility for what you've actually been saying to yourself um like over all these years which i think mm-hmm. yeah those two go pretty well together so um since we're talking about the man of the coat and that whole thing i want to skip i have another thought about like the inner monologue but i want to skip ahead to something else so throughout this entire st- like throughout most of the story you say be a man a lot you have a lot of, I don't know if this was an intentional thing or if this is a whatever, and I don't want to get too much into like a sociopolitical commentary about it, but you have a lot of emphasis on man up, be a man, do whatever. So is there, the idea of traditional manhood is playing really heavily into this story, and I'm not sure if you intended for that to be a thing, but it feels a little toxic at times of either be a man and kill your daughter or be a man and be a father when you didn't want to be, when you could have like supported in some other way. There's, it's just, I don't quite know what you're trying to say with be a man in this story. So I think initially what I was going for, initially what I was going for was like, this was the idea of deadbeat dads. Like mm-hmm. that was something that like was probably big in my mind when I was, um, when I was initially writing it is because there was just so much that was going on or at least there was enough there's something going on in my life to the point where I was thinking about it a lot where it's just kind of like the idea of someone who has a kid but then is completely kind of negating the responsibility or trying to get rid of it um, repeatedly was something that was like really kind of forefront in my mind Um, but I see your point and like I think a lot of what it was was it kind of plays both ways where the where the man the coat is saying like be a man and take some responsibility for what you've actually been thinking to yourself um where it's also that emmett thought that be a man was yeah just be a father even if you don't want to be um and i don't think either one is right i think the two kind of like i think it's more of like there actually is a debate between the two of them between those two ideas yeah no and i i sort of get that and i like that as a conversation I really like that debate of, well, I'm here or like, I'm here, but it's not enough. And like, you have to take responsibility for your thoughts. You have to like do this and do that. And like, I like the idea of both toxic ideas playing off of each other. Mm-hmm. I would say either emphasize, I don't know. I would like, I kind of almost want to say like emphasize the debate between them more mm-hmm. or rem. Or, like, say, take out a few of the, like, be a man's. Because you're right. I don't want this to become a sociopolitical commentary on yeah. traditional manhood. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, I think, but I think I can't 
I can't emphasize the debate more without it becoming that, where it's just kind of like, this is like, what does it mean to be a man in this day and age? It's like, that's not what this is about. Yeah. I think that it's just at this level, and I don't know, like Steve, you can completely disagree with me, but I feel like at this level, it's not enough of either one. It either needs to be like emphasize more which i think you're right if you do it's going to become a commentary that you didn't intend for it to be mm-hmm. or you know, pull it back just a little bit so it's it's something that's like hovering in the back of his mind of like no i should like do this and bleh. and then the guy i think and also because at the beginning he says i don't want to be a coward mm-hmm. and then the man in the coat kind of playing off of the like be a coward thing and being like no be a man do the thing I think it could just like, you just need to take a couple of them out and then it'll have a better effect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just took it as like, you know, his like internal dialogues way of saying, you know, take responsibility. Um, Because you usually follow it up like the sentence like immediately after that is usually something to that effect. Like, you know, take responsibility for your actions. You have to do this yourself and so on. Um, I didn't really get the sense of like any kind of internal debate going on where that was concerned, but um, if that was something you wanted to do, yeah, I think developing it a little more would be a lot more effective. Like freedom being an illusion is one thing. And it's, it's more of just that in, in that state, you're not going to get everything you want just because you've already made certain decisions that whatever you whatever you do next it's not going to be the right it's not going to be the right quote-unquote decision it's not going to be like the right decision in the right place at the right time for the right reason it's going to be something that goes so like at least a little bit off course if not way off course if that makes any sense at all and so no it does i still want you to cut that line as well i will good thank you wait wait, what line freedom is an illusion yeah no that just that just gets way too philosophical (laughs) this is no, what, okay, Steve. It's the frying pan. It's the frying pan hitting you on the head. Oh, <laughs> and you know how I feel about that. <laughs> what were you gonna say, Steve? Well, I don't. I mean, it might be a bit of a cliche, but I kind of liked. You know, it, I mean, it did seem like it was a bit sudden, but like the broader idea of like that's the last thing he would hear before he, you know, his body is dumped into a river. I thought actually was somewhat effective. I um, mean, I think it you know ties into like what I thought like was one of the broader sort of themes here, intentional or otherwise, is um, image versus reality. Um, So, you know, you have the idea of what being quote unquote free is in your head and then it never really quite works out that way. Um, You have an idea of like what their life together was gonna be, but then it didn't come to fruition. You know, he's being, he's chasing around like this, like sort of mental picture in his head, but it's not ever really a realistic expectation, if that makes sense. And that's where like a lot of the temptation to do these things comes from. That, that makes a lot of sense, and I hadn't thought about that before. So Kind of going off of the idea of what's in his head, I felt like the internal monologue of the story was really heavy in places where it didn't necessarily need to be. Um, I like the idea that we get an insight into his head, especially when it comes to thoughts about his daughter, but I feel like a lot of that doesn't have to be thoughts. You can show and not tell mm-hmm. a little bit more. Yeah. I think it, to some extent it felt like I was being handed things. Does that like, yeah, that like, does. And, and, and even, shove and it even, in my face. <laughs> yeah. And, and even reading it, like it came across a little bit heavy to me. Um, so yeah, I can definitely see some places where I can trim that back. Even it's just like how he looks at her, right? Like how he looks at Lucy, how he looks at Val and like descriptors for them versus 
she's such a whiny chain on my ankle, just like looking at her and just being like, oh, this fucking parasite, right? Like, there's all of the emotion should be there, all of the desire should be there. I think you can just express it in a slightly different way, Mm -hmm. a little bit more subtle. Sorry, I know people can't see me, and I'm still like making ridiculous facial expressions of yes, yes, please make it a little more subtle. Whenever, whenever I mention subtlety, just imagine Kirsten just doing this maniacal, this maniacal smile. Like it's Cheshire. literally Mr. Burns with the chair being excellent, excellent. I was thinking more of the Cheshire Cat, but okay. That too. It's a combination of the two. <laughs> Depends on my positioning in the chair. <laughs> Oh, oh boy. Um, uh, but yeah, I like the concept of this story. And I really, I've been pushing you to edit it. And I, yeah, I just, I really like it. I think it's a perfect amount of creepy. I think it's a story that you're really well suited to tell, just in terms of the way that you're combining the mythos with like, not sociopolitical commentary, but maybe like just a another sort of commentary i don't know what you would call it but like it's just it's it's just seeing things and pushing the words a little bit i guess is the best way of putting it it's yeah i I don't like commentary that's for that's that's for that's for other people that's for that's for pundits i thought you you, i mean it could come across as like a uh like a psychological commentary maybe um it's you know having to do with like rationalizing bad behavior um, cause like if anybody, you know, in, who's listening, you know, grew up with people that, you know, suffer from addictions or have any personal experience with it, like the human mind becomes like amazingly flexible about rationalizing bad shit, mm-hmm. um, to where like your reasoning faculty serves irrationality rather than the other way around. So, you know, like his overwhelming desire to be quote unquote free, uh, like convinces him to, you know, literally kill someone. And I think if it was ever put like that bluntly, it would have never come about. But like when you're in that place of wanting something or thinking you want something, like the mind will play all kinds of tricks to get you there. Um, and that was kind of one of the things I was thinking about as I was going through it. Yeah, self-delusion is really powerful. Because I think to an extent, it's also him being like, my life would be so much different if I didn't have a child. And it's like, if you got married right out of high school and like never like i don't know maybe this is just what your life would have been well and there's blaming it on the kid yeah and there's like the theme i guess of like realistic versus unrealistic expectations like it seems like both of them had like this idea in their head of like what this perfect tranquil life would be but because they got pregnant too soon that was cut off um whereas you know if they thought okay um we're gonna be together for a while we're gonna struggle together we're gonna get through this this is just how life is you wouldn't have had like all that suffering that came with unrealistic expectations if that makes sense yeah it does. um i mean it's kind of like in, i know that you've been working on another uh, story about the stoics it's um we suffer as much like in our own head and in our own reaction to things as much as what actually happens to us mm-hmm. um it's so, like in this case like they're upset about having a daughter because like it interfered with like the plans or their ideas of what their life would be not necessarily because she showed up herself or at least that was my reading um so that might be like another theme that you could develop a little bit more if that was actually what you were going for yeah i think it might even be annoying more annoying if he does like her and he's still blaming her but there is a part of him that likes her sorry nathan please go no 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 no. when you're saying like likes her you talking about like likes lucy or likes val lucy 
like illusion versus reality and then like the the aspect of we suffer as much in our own minds as we do is like whatever happens to us i don't think that was actually like playing in it like when i was writing it but i definitely see where it's coming from and i do like the idea of playing with that a little bit more because it's it's something that i believe but then it's also that it it goes to show a little bit more of just how broken like this guy actually is and that's and that's the whole point of the story is like like broken people can occasionally do absolutely terrible things like sometimes sometimes people who have traumatic things happen to them are legitimately just trying to do the best they can and they struggle and they sometimes do the wrong thing i don't think they're to blame as much as people who are yes they're fucked up but they have worked themselves into a position where they do something absolutely horrific, knowing it was wrong, but they thought it was just the way they could get free. Um, and I think that's kind of the case of what happens here. And I, I, I like the idea of playing a little bit more of with self-delusion and the idea that we're, like this is something that's been driven by his own personal thoughts and his own, and his own personal um suffering and failure to comprehend the reality that he's actually in if that makes any sense at all no it really does and i think i i definitely agree that that's something you should play up is just him especially if you're especially if you go with the like you don't have to but like especially if you go with the whole like idea of he thinks originally that he's selling her not killing her yeah. and just like then he's looking around the house being like what could we do with that money like what could we like all like no like i need to help val i need to do this i need to do that this is our only way this is our only way this is our only way mm-hmm. and then he's just built that in his head of like i'm not in the wrong life has done me wrong this is my way out you know like that kind of idea yeah and then and then he gets to the situation where he finds out that it's not selling her it's killing her and he goes along with it anyway because he's because he's still set up like this is the only way out, and it's not what I thought. It's worse, but I'm still gonna go through with it. Yeah. So, yeah. No, this has been this has been helpful. This has been incredibly <laughs> helpful, actually. Yay! Yes. <laughs> yeah. So. I I think that was all of my thoughts on it. Steve, did you have anything else? No, I think that covered it for me as well. Yeah. I don't know, like like I said, I really I really like the story. I want to see what you do with it. So send after if if and when you finish this next round of edits, send it. I want to read it. I will definitely definitely send it. So yeah, no. that's just what I needed for some holiday cheer with some child murder. <laughs> Who wants another feel good murder song? <laughs> Oh man, one of my favorite artists released a song called Blackout Christmas and I was like, this is the only Christmas song I ever need ever. Like, I'm good. I think I heard that song and I was just kind of like, oh geez, this is, this is, this, this is like reminding me of so many, this is, this is like a ghost of Christmas past is what it is. Yeah, it is two minutes and 18 seconds of truly horribly relatable content. And it's, all I need. it's just that and watching Die Hard. That's the only Halloween spirit I'm ever, I'm ever going to I mean, I've never actually watched Die Hard. <gasps> I know it's a Christmas film. I know it's a Christmas film. I've just never seen it. The look I, of pure shock on her face right now. It's just like... Listeners, I am appalled. <laughs> I hope you are too. <laughs> like, no, we are oh. definitely 
partying and we're gonna watch Die Hard. (laughs) (laughs) That is not up for negotiation. I will fly to your location and I will make you watch the movie. <laughs> I, I will I will duct tape you to the couch and we're gonna fucking watch Die Hard. I will not fly home to f- see my family on Christmas, but I will make you watch Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> not really. I'm just gonna make him Netflix party with me. It'll be fine. <laughs> I mean, you know what? That that's 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 doable. That that's <laughs> that's acceptable. I keep, me- I keep meaning to watch it. I've just never like gotten around to it because for some reason my family, my, like my family makes Christmas such a cheery thing. Like it's so cozy. Um, but it's also just kind of like, we like a Christmas story is on repeat in my yeah. house and yeah. I hate it. I'm just like, why I, guys? I don't know if I've ever actually seen a Christmas story straight through beginning to end. I've just seen the five most iconic scenes yeah. a thousand times. Effectively, what it is is like I watch, I watch a Christmas story akin to like blackout flashbacks, where it's just kind of like I just zoom in for a bit and then I pull out and then I zoom in for a bit and then it comes out and then it's just kind of like yes, laugh at that, laugh at that, Steve. <laughs> um, but it's like I I've never actually sat down and watched it straight through because I think the story's stupid. I, I honestly don't even know how it ends. I don't know what the plot of it is. It's the like the kid gets his damn red rider BB gun. He oh, he thinks and then he, he shoots, shoots his, his eye. eye out. No, he thinks no, he, he shoots doesn't. his eye out, but he doesn't. He hurts his eye. My bad. But like whatever. So he so okay. This is how I remember a Christmas story. The younger brother gets too wrapped up in a snowsuit and falls. <laughs> then their mayor. I don't know about the order because again, like, scenes out of order. And then there's the part where the kid gets his tongue stuck on the fire pole mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then they go visit Santa and the Santa says you'll cut your, you'll shoot your eye out and pushes him down the slide. Then there's the leg lamp. Then there's stuff. And then it's Christmas and he gets the rifle and almost shoots his eye out. Yeah. That's yep. a Christmas story for me. That's the cliff notes right there. Yeah, yeah there you go. Is. <laughs> there is, but it's the 50s and it's a classic there is there is um i think there's one line out of that story that i really do like and it was the glow of electric sex in the window <laughs> and i was just kind of like talking yeah, about the lake talking about the lake lamp and i was like that movie is worth watching for that one line but by and large i hate it i will I will say this. I will take a Muppet Christmas Carol any day of the week and twice on Sunday um, because it is actually one of the best interpretations of that story. Um, Anything with the Muppets, I will give a pass to. Yes. A Muppet Treasure Island and a Muppet Christmas Carol to me are like two of my favorite films from childhood, excluding Disney movies. But yeah. So that being said, I have not seen Die Hard. I should see it this Christmas. I will see it this Christmas. Um, yeah. Hit you me will. Up. Thank you for just <laughs> acknowledging that this is happening. Steve, you're welcome to join us too. It will be exactly this, but with Die Hard in the background. <laughs> Can we record like his live, like, live commentary as we go through it? Like initial yes. reactions? 
absolutely. Special holiday Dark Waters podcast edition. It'll be great. Special holiday edition of the Dark Waters podcast. It'll be great. Done. Why not? On that note, uh, again, we will link to Steve's work in the show notes. We'll link to Nathan's work in the show notes. We'll link to our Gmail so that you can submit your own stories and go through this nonsense in the show notes. Um, but yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks, Steve, for coming back on. It was really great to have you. Yeah, anytime, guys. I enjoy this. Uh, so yeah, everyone have a good day. Stay safe. Watch out for Hans Luber. And always remember to look beneath the surface. Bye guys. Bye everybody. See you.